0: Mayor Brandon Johnson proposes a $16.6 billion Chicago budget without major tax hikes. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about how one index says mortgage rates are worrying home buyers more than prices and other news from the local housing market.
1: Interest rates are really hanging over the housing market in two ways, and these both come out in the Fannie Mae report. One, as a buyer, I really see that I can afford far less at 7%, which is where interest rates have been recently. As a seller, I have a home with a mortgage in the 3% range, the 4% range. I'm really hesitant to give that up because when I buy another one, I'm going to have to buy in the 7% range.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, October 12th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com. Slash Banker, banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation, banks FDIC. Slash EHL. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Welcome back, Dennis.
1: Hi, Amy. How are you?
0: I'm well, thank you. Missed you terribly
1: last week. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm sorry I was on vacation, so I can't say the feeling is mutual. <laughs>
0: Right, well deserved vacation because you are always very busy with real estate news. It keeps you on your toes. Let's get into some of those stories. So, talk to me about mortgage rates and how perhaps that is weighing on home buyers more than home prices.
1: You know, this is an interesting finding. I mean, it's it is a little bit of a restatement of the obvious, and I'll say why. But uh, Fannie Mae, the government-backed mortgage finance giant, uh, does a monthly survey called the Home Purchase Sentiment Index. And for September, just released this week, they found that uh, we're at the the smallest number of people, the smallest percentage of people uh, on record said it's a good time to buy. 16% of people say it's a good time to buy a house. Same was true 11 months ago um, in October, 2022, in a report that was out in November of that year. The difference is that this time last year and in virtually every other report, the Fannie Mae index has had, the biggest uh, worry point for home buyers was prices. Prices are too high, prices are rising very fast. I don't know where prices are going. For 13 years when Fannie Mae has been doing this uh, index, that's what people have said is the worst problem. For the first time in September of 2023, the biggest problem was mortgage rates, which is really interesting. This is what the the writer of the report said, it's clear that at this point mortgage rates really have you know crept into people's heads Uh, home prices are continuing to rise you and i have talked about this again and again home prices have not faltered especially in the chicago area since the housing boom ended and interest rates have gone up dramatically in part because the housing boom ended with the federal reserve trying to fight inflation by raising interest rates at this point september The index says that people are more concerned about interest rates and about rising prices. Not, and I said it's sort of a restating of the, or a statement of the obvious. One of the reasons this would be true is, again, this index is 13 years old. For most of that 13 years, um, interest rates were in that trough of sub 4%, sometimes sub 3% of the 2010s. We got used to those. So of course they wouldn't have been people's biggest worry. That's how it's a restatement of the obvious. But to get away from that, what it really tells us is interest rates are really hanging over the housing market in two ways. And these both come out in the Fannie Mae report. One, as a buyer, I really you know, see that I can afford far less at 7%, which is where interest rates have been recently, than at three or 4%, where they were for a very long time, ending in 2022. As a seller, I have a home in the, with a mortgage in the 3% range, the 4% range. I'm really hesitant to give that up, put my house on the market, because when I buy another one, I'm going to have to buy in the 7% range. So in both of those ways, the first they check is it's not a good time to buy and it's not a good time to sell. This is likely to stay true for quite a while because home prices continue to rise. Interest rates continue to not come back down, as some some people hope they would. That's a national index. I spoke to two local people in the mortgage industry, and they said, yeah, it makes customers reluctant to buy or to sell. uh, And that's likely to linger for quite a while because we don't see interest rates coming down, and we certainly don't see prices coming down. So um, it's going to be here for a while.
0: And in separate reporting, uh, you reported on on another data set that indicated that it was much harder to afford housing in much of the Chicago area than it has been any time in the past 15 years. So maybe perhaps that is another specter kind of hanging over all of that.
1: That would be a big piece of it. So that's a report from Adam, and they look at affordability as a measure of what the typical um, salary can afford in terms of the typical home in a metro area. And in the Chicago area, it's harder to afford a home than it's been at any time since 2008, given the way they measure it. And and you know we know that because once again, prices are going up and interest rates are going up and we haven't been in that situation. Well, we couldn't have been in that situation for a very long time because Interest rates haven't gone up for, or hadn't gone up for a very long time until last year. And so, you know, affordability is running away, according to the Adam Index. And then what the Fannie Mae Index says is, and people are blaming that more on interest rates than on prices.
0: Sure. And and so does that also indicate that it will take more than one factor shifting in order to kind of change the tide of that?
1: I think it could. Um, We don't see either one shifting, right? We don't see interest rates coming down. Yeah, right. Although, you know, there there are a lot of clouds on the horizon, war and a presidential election and other things. So it's possible that interest rates come down before prices come down. But one of the things that uh, the writer of the Fannie Mae report said is some sellers think, well, prices will probably come down because buyers are so resistant based on interest rates. One of the problems we have is there are a lot of buyers in the market and not a lot of houses on the market. So if fewer buyers are in the market because of these affordability issues, then prices do start to come down. But nobody's saying that's going to happen yet. Not here. I mean, we we do see that prices have fallen in some of those boom markets, but that's a whole different set of dynamics.
0: Right. That's a whole other conversation on a whole other podcast. Yeah. For sure.
1: <laughs> For our counterpoints in Phoenix.
0: That's right. For our stunt doubles there.
1: Our stunt doubles in Phoenix. Exactly.
0: All right. Well, it has been a minute since we have talked about Justin Ishbia and the saga of everything happening uh, with the Winnetka Park District. And there on that lakefront property, you've got more. Tell me what's going on.
1: Yeah. Just last week, a Cook County judge ruled that the Winnetka Park District does have the authority to trade the land with Justin Ishbia is what it comes down to. Um, To refresh people's memory, uh, if you were driving or riding your bike north on Sheridan Road in Winnetka, you'd pass three lots that belong to Justin Ishbia, a public park, a lot that belongs to Justin Ishbia, and a public park. In October 2020, uh, when he was buying some of those parcels, Ishbia and the park district arranged for a swap so that everything on the north would be park and everything on the south would be his. He would give up that piece in the middle. They would give up a piece of a park. There have been several things that have happened trying to stop it, but one of them was a lawsuit brought by a former CFO of Sears. We talked about it approximately this time last year, where they were saying this is a violation of the public trust for a very specific reason. One of the state codes that governs park districts in Illinois dictates that if you trade any property, you can only trade it for something that's worth the same or more. You can't trade at a loss. So the original appraisals done by the park district in early in 2020 said, okay, this is fine because uh, what we're getting is valued at higher than what we're giving away. 2022, market has changed. Um, these people filing the lawsuit commissioned some appraisals, and, they, and their appraisals say that it's the opposite. The park district is giving away something that's worth more than what it would get from Justin Ishbia. So they say this is a violation of the law um, that governs park districts, and so you can't do it. What the judge said is, well, as a matter of fact, what the law says is that they have to go through these appraisals, they have to do all this stuff very carefully, and the part according to the judge, the park district did that. Um, you can argue, One appraisal is not the same as another. I disagree with this appraisal, those kinds of things, but you can't, that doesn't amount to a legal challenge. All that does is say you disagree with their numbers. Um, So she threw it out or she dismissed it. I shouldn't say she threw it out. There is a piece of it. uh, So essentially that clears the path for the park district to trade its land with Justin Ishbia. There's a piece of the lawsuit that um, the the opponents to the swap may rewrite and bring back to court. Uh, So the swap is not necessarily going through, but it seems very likely to at this point. The one thing I should add is Ishby is going ahead with construction of the mansion on what we've counted up as a $77 million estate, cost of the land and cost of construction with or without this land swap going through. So what he will do if he gets the land And what he will do if he doesn't get the land really is immaterial to construction of the estate, but he would have a bigger piece of property if it goes through.
0: And so what is the next step? Or have we actually kind of reached the end of the saga?
1: Oh, there'll be another step.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's more drama. There's always more drama.
1: So the, the lawyers can resubmit this one part of their case. Okay. And so that's likely to be the next step.
0: Well, we'll stay tuned for that and probably talk about it in a week or so. All right. Talk to me about how hedge fund chief Dimitri Balazny is selling a pair of Four Seasons condos. We don't too often talk about pairs of condos, but here we are.
1: Yeah, and this is an interesting pair because they do actually seem to be separate condos only attached by um, French doors. Um, there's a lot that I don't know because the public records are unclear and Dimitri Balasny and his wife and their real estate agent wouldn't talk to me. So there are some things I don't know. But what I do know is um, in the Bloomingdale's building on a very high floor, they have two units, one on the market for about 4.5 million and one on the market for about 3.5. So nearly $8 million. They're being offered together or separately. They're actually listed separately but the listings say you could buy these together. And that's where I learned that they're actually just attached by some French doors, or I should say, they're actually separated by some French doors. This is really interesting. Dimitri Baliasnyi is one of the founders of, and the chief investment officer of a $21 billion hedge fund named for him, Baliasnyi. And it's based in Chicago. One of the things that I found as I was sort of sifting through the records is, they built a big house in Wyoming, which a lot of wealthy people have done. They did it prior to COVID, but apparently made it their home during COVID. And she did an interview where she said, you know, we don't have to live in the city anymore. We realized we can raise our kids in Wyoming. Hmm. So are you selling these condos because you're, uh, you're based in Wyoming now? Uh, they didn't talk to me, so I don't know. I do know that they have a home in Kenilworth as well. They bought that several years ago for about three and a half million dollars. So it's not as if they have no footprint or will have no footprint in Chicago when they get rid of these condos. But it's just, it's sort of fascinating to think that you've got essentially a whole floor of the Bloomingdale's building. Don't know when they bought it. The records are are a little weird. They, they bought at least some of it in 1999, might've bought all of it at the time. So if you bought it 24 years ago and it was two condos, you've left it that way. This is why I really wish more people would would talk to me about their properties because I'd love to know. Because
0: we have questions here.
1: Yeah. Like, how are you living in these two condos? But what it boils down to is he's the head of a $21 billion hedge fund, and he has nearly $8 million worth of condos at the Bloomingdale's building for sale.
0: Well, we shall see if they sell uh, together or separately. Interesting. All right, well, let's talk about another, um, you know, titan of industry and talk about this (laughs) baronial home built by uh, Arthur Anderson that is for sale in Winnetka.
1: Man, this house, you know, as I've said before, I've looked at a lot of houses in my career.
0: It is wild, yeah. Oh my
1: gosh, this is in Winnetka, in the um, Indian Hill section, the west part of Winnetka, built in 1931. For Arthur Anderson, who was, he was a Northwestern accounting professor, kind of a wunderkind. He supposedly was the youngest CPA, youngest person to pass the CPA exam in Illinois in the early 1900s. Um, He's teaching accounting at Northwestern. He and a partner start an accounting firm that becomes Arthur Anderson, started in 1913. And, you know, in the second half of the 20th century and the very early 21st century, One of the big five accounting firms, one of the major thousands of employees around the world. Uh, But again, he starts it in 1913. And in 1931, he and his wife, Emma, build this truly magnificent house.
0: It's a literal castle. I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's a castle. Oh, my gosh. You look at
1: that front with that. I mean, it's an exquisite Tudor front with this beautiful tower of a chimney, the brick and limestone, the brick above, limestone below, the wood timbers, you kind of feel like you've just landed in England somewhere. Um, What I said on Twitter was, there may be no accounting for taste, but here's an accountant who had a lot of taste. Um, (laughs) Then you go inside the house and the carved wood paneling in the foyer, in the living room, those plaster ceilings, I mean, you see them in a lot of houses of the era, but these are just magnificent. Um, Really a remarkable house. I learned something after we posted the story. Somebody who used to work at the Arthur Anderson accounting firm said, oh, you know, these doors remind me of doors that were in our offices and also doors that were on our logo. There are these big, hefty, beautiful, old antique looking wooden doors in the house. And according to this person, who's a former Arthur Anderson employee, the same kind of a door was a symbol of um, the stability and solidity of the firm, which is kind of interesting. I don't know where it starts. Did does, did somebody go to the house and say, oh, we should use these as the logo for the firm? No idea. But uh, it's sort of interesting that there's that echo. Uh, it's a beautiful house. Oh, I didn't say. It's on the market for nearly $9 million. Um, the owners uh, didn't respond to most of my questions. I don't know how long they've had it, but they did confirm that it was designed by Solon Spencer Beeman. There's no real record, but they had an old article. Solon Spencer Beeman is this interesting guy, not to be confused with Spencer Solon Beeman. Right. That's his dad. Different
0: guy. I know.
1: (laughs) Spencer Solon Beeman is the architect who designed many things, but especially the uh, company town Pullman on the south side. His son, Solon Spencer Beeman, was an architect of, of Christian science churches, of big houses in Winnetka, this one in particular. Um, and they have an old article written by Solon Spencer Beeman's wife, Marion, about the house. Um, I don't know where she wrote this article, but she talks about how the idea really was to build an old English house on the west side of Winnetka. It's, it's just magnificent. As one does. Yes, as one does.
0: Yeah. Really amazing details. Head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see these photos. All of that, that ceiling detail and the, just the woodwork around the house and that fireplace. Yeah. I'm, I I don't don't hate that. I'm glad you don't. I don't hate it. I do not hate it. All right. Well, another, uh, we have all these like very substantial buildings on the docket today, but another one, talk to me about the Black Panthers medical and daycare sites.
1: So this is an interesting proposal from a woman, uh, Lila Wills, whose parents were Black Panthers, and she's in historic preservation. She works for Landmark, Il- Landmarks Illinois. She's put together a proposal to do a thematic uh, historic district, which is say, a geographic historic district would be everything happened within these few blocks. Uh, a thematic district, this stretches from East St. Louis, to the west side of Chicago. There are about a dozen sites in Chicago, few more in the suburbs, Maywood, et cetera. But all around the state, you would have this sort of thematic historic district. Um, Chicago City Council needs to approve because there are so many in Chicago, but it would actually become recognized by the Illinois Historic Preservation Agency. Lila Wills went to a Black Panther daycare center when she was a child. And she's very focused on the social services side of the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers have a reputation for carrying guns, being violent. We don't have the time here to talk about exactly how that came to be, but it is also true that the Black Panthers in Chicago had a social services agenda, that they had a sickle cell anemia program um, started by Bobby Rush, who ends up spending a long time in Congress. They had a daycare center, which Lila Wills and others uh, one of her sisters and other people attended. They had a medical clinic they had they uh, had free breakfast for as many as four thousand Chicago children at the height of the program. And what she wants to do is sort of memorialize these programs, not turn your back on the violent side. But specifically focus on these in part to, as she said, and as one of the original Chicago Black Panthers, Billy Brooks, said to me to point out that there was an attempt to do something positive, that there were people who were fighting for you in these neighborhoods back then. Billy Brooks said, you know, we were we were actually trying to to change the world. And now there are kids in these neighborhoods looking around, thinking there's no hope seeing whiskey bottles shattered in vacant lots, and what they need to know, according to him, is that there were people actually fighting to change this at the time. Um, So the question would be, uh, will there be signage? Would there be a website? What would you do to help people go around and look at these? Most of the buildings are gone. Uh, There are a couple of churches that they had programs in. There's a private home where the daycare center was in, and Lila specifically asked me not to share yet where the home is because um, the homeowners haven't yet signed on. So she's trying to, you know, trying to protect them. But the idea would be that you would look at, these are the things that the Black Panthers were doing that really were trying to uh, affect positive change. And let's deal separately with the reputation uh, that has clung to them for a long time for uh, carrying guns.
0: I mean, it's a really interesting idea, right? To memorialize, and protect space that's so radically transformed. We we often think about like keeping a house or a building as it was in its heyday and restoring it. But the idea of a structure that's no longer there and it's been replaced by something else, but to say this was the site of this thing.
1: Or in many of these cases is a vacant lot.
0: Right, or is nothing. Right, or has not been replaced even perhaps more powerfully, right? Has not been replaced. Right. Like that's a statement that that is really interesting that we don't really talk about so much, uh, we don't see surfaced so much in historical preservation conversations. It's a really interesting idea. It kind of reminds me of like some of the public art we've seen that said, this is the site of something that did not occur.
1: Yeah. This is where redlining was happening. Yeah. That's one of the things Billy Brooks talked about is the idea that because there isn't something here, because, I mean, there was, let's be honest, there was an attempt to make uh, the only thing you knew about the Black Panthers be they carried guns. And there has been disinvestment in these neighborhoods. There have been a lot of buildings torn down. Billy Brooks would tell you, Billy Brooks, who's one of the original Black Panthers in Chicago, would tell you that that was intentional, that that was Chicago trying to wipe out the memory of the Black Panthers. Whether that is true or is not true, it is clear those buildings are gone. Um, And so you don't have a way to say right here is where somebody was really trying hard Somebody was feeding kids breakfast before school. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see if this develops and if it does, how much of the that sort of that lingering feeling that the Black Panthers were about violence, how much that will sort of clash with this.
0: Yeah, that will be really interesting. We'll have to revisit that as that progresses. All right, well, we've got a couple of houses to talk about before we wrap. One of them is a cottage on the Chain of Lakes. Tell me about
1: this. Oh, man, this, this one is... <laughs>
0: Chain o Lakes. Chain o Lakes,
1: exactly. <laughs> this is so nice. You travel back to 1914 when you look at this house, and uh, that's because it's been in one family's hands since it was built in 1914. Third generation is now selling it. Um, it was built by hand by Frank Karg, Frank and Hannah Karg, who lived on in South Shore in the 19-teens, and as it happens, their house looked just like the one they built on the chain of lakes, chain O. And as it happens, the house looks just like the one they built on the chain of lakes. Uh, they built a house um, that they would use in the summers. They A lot of them, uh, Frank had a tire company. Hannah was a teacher. She had a lot of friends and relatives who were teachers. They would go up to this house on Channel Lake near Antioch and spend the summers. And it still looks pretty much as it did then. It's The amount of beadboard in this house is Amazing beadboard was really trendy again in the like '90s, early 2000s. So you might think that this hab, this house was rehabbed in the night. No, this is the original look from 1914. There are whole rooms that are walled and ceilinged in beadboard. It's just it's got this old lake cottage feel uh, that's been preserved because so Frank and Hannah Karg built it. It went down to their daughter Barbara. She recently died. She eventually was using it as a full-time home. She recently died, and her um kids don't all live in Chicago. The one who's work, who's uh, work the one who's representing it for sale is um a guy who lives in San Diego. He has great memories of being there. He was there when it was his grandparents' house, he was there when it was his uh mother's house. He remembers playing volleyball on the lawn and riding boats all through the chain of lakes, but he has he and the other family members have no use for it now. So even though it's this cherished family piece, um, they're letting go of it. They're asking $940,000 for it. And to hear him talk, it was really interesting. I mean, I said, you travel back to 1914 when you see this house. I felt like I was one of his childhood friends because he's talking about getting in a boat off that dock and, and plying the waters and meeting people in the other cottages and things like that. Um, really a pretty, very pretty house on a couple of acres, big dock. And uh, as he described it, you're looking east, uh, sorry, as he described it, you're looking west. So you're seeing the sunset over the lake, which is a real sort of a summertime experience. Oh, how Really pretty. pretty. $940,000. Um, may not work as a full-time home for everybody. It has one bathroom, uh, but you could always, you know, add one. But really just a beautiful, beautiful setting and a, and a spectacular house that, as I said, so I looked for their house. He wasn't sure where it was, but I looked for their house in South Shore. It was easy to find. It's, uh, and it looks just like this house.
0: And I love that all of that original detail is preserved in there. That, that beadboard is so interesting looking.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things he said is that the kind of family we are is we wouldn't say, eh, yeah, this is done. Let's, let's do something new we would keep it the way it was and um and you can see i mean it really feels like a place that has been treasured by three generations of a family
0: yeah definitely all right another house to talk about before we wrap and that is a restored 19th century kenwood home this is another one. Everybody head to chicagobusiness.com and check out these photos. This is quite a house. Tell me about it.
1: It is. We So we had just talked about a house in Kenwood, uh, I think in the last podcast, maybe the one before. Beautiful one that came on the market. This one came on the market about the same time. Took a while for me to connect with the sellers, but um, just astonishing in its size, in its um, detail. Really, really beautiful. The couple who bought it, so it was built in the 1880s. We don't know who the architect was. The couple who bought it in 1997 did massive renovations over the course of time. They paid $600,000 for it in 1997. And the things she described to me, I mean, you know, they pulled up newer floors or linoleum floors or carpet, and they found old floors underneath, but they were kind of ruined. So we had to put in, they said, new floors that evoked... The period, the 1880s, they found bookcases and I think a chandelier, and I can't remember what else, stuffed in the basement and they figured out the places they would have belonged. Um, the bookcases, you could sort of, I guess when they pulled up the carpet, you saw the footprint of where the bookcase once had been nailed down. So they put them back. Really a beautiful house. It's it, it's very done. I mean, it's it's from a period when houses were layered with detail. And this one is. But a very substantial out on the street, just this very substantial face, come into a beautiful wood foyer, tile, glass, just really, really wonderful. Um, they're asking two point three five million. Like I said, they paid six hundred thousand for it about twenty six years ago, and they put an enormous amount of work into it.
0: The detail on this is so interesting. That I mean, that they in replacing the floors took the time to like make this. I don't know, it looks like a lotus or a compass or something like inlaid in the floor. The detail in the ceilings with these cross beams and then mimicking that in the flooring on uh, below it. Gorgeous. What interesting detail.
1: Really, really nice.
0: And I'm very much here for that wallpaper in the dining room. Yeah. I am completely here for that.
1: Yeah. If you're going to do something like it's period, you should really go all the way. You should like get the most florid wall for a house like that 1880s. You better get the most florid wallpaper you can find.
0: I would do that. Unrelated, may I borrow several million dollars for a house? (laughs) Because I would absolutely do that. I would totally restore it to its full grandeur.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely need a wallpaper budget. One whole line of
0: your budget is wallpaper. Is all just cool, historic wallpaper. Absolutely. That is a thing I would do. Completely. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? Uh, Well, so
1: we've talked recently about some of the issues that have confronted the National Association of Realtors. Yes. I'm going to take a look at where does this organization stand? I mean, essentially, the National Association of Realtors helped create the profession of real estate agent based here in Chicago uh, from the early 1900s. And now there's a lot going on um, around commissions, around sexual discrimination. So I'm going to take a look at what does this mean?
0: Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, let's meet this time next week and talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Okay. See you then. Coming up, the newly opened Guinness Brewery in Fulton Market is already up for sale. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning Ten. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit Chicagobusiness.com/slash morning ten.
1: This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Gu.
0: I'll discuss the Chicago budget in greater detail in an upcoming episode of the podcast with Cranes reporter, Justin Lawrence. But for now, here's the gist. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson has proposed a $16.6 billion 2024 budget that closes a $538 million budget gap without raising property taxes. Lawrence reported that the budget includes increased revenue projections as well as savings and efficiencies to close the deficit. Mayor Johnson's also tapping into the city's TIF surplus and using federal COVID relief dollars to fund some of his priorities. The budget includes some new investments, like expanding the city's mental health network and homelessness shelter system. However, many of Johnson's campaign promises, such as reopening the city's shuttered mental health clinics, will not be fully funded this first year. Lawrence further reported that the budget is not without its critics. Some members of the city council are concerned about the lack of transparency and the fact that they have not been briefed on the details of the budget. Others are reportedly concerned about the level of spending on the Chicago Police Department. But Lawrence reported that Johnson's budget is heavy on what he describes as strategic investments and down payments to fulfill his campaign promise to invest in people to transform Chicago. But that many of those commitments won't be funded in full puts pressure on his closest allies to sell his base on the promise that he'll deliver in future years, despite city estimates predicting increased deficits through 2026. Lawrence also noted that Johnson's speech before the city council on Wednesday struck a hopeful note, describing his proposal as a people's budget and alluded to the rerouting of the Chicago River, saying that it could begin to, quote, reroute the rivers of prosperity to the banks of disinvestment. The budget goes before city council for approval on November 15th. Walgreens Boots Alliance has appointed Tim Wentworth as its next CEO. And tasked him with turning around the struggling drugstore chain and its push into healthcare. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that Wentworth, a veteran of the healthcare industry, will take over on October 23rd, replacing Rosalind Brewer, who left the company in August. He inherits a company that has been losing ground to rival CVS Health and is facing challenges from Amazon and other online retailers and pharmacies. Davis noted that before her abrupt departure at the end of August, Brewer had been working to broaden Walgreens' offerings with moves like a $5.2 billion investment in primary care provider Village MD. Analysts have said that the strategy was solid, yet investors were impatient. Walgreens had said it would seek a replacement for Brewer with what it described as deep healthcare experience. Wentworth previously held senior roles at pharmacy benefits manager Medco Health Solutions before mergers with Express Scripts and Cigna. In an internal memo, Walgreens said Wentworth was appointed because he is, quote, widely recognized as a leading executive in the healthcare industry. He's expected to, quote, accelerate the company's path to profitability and ensure that the healthcare segment is on track to achieve positive EBITDA by the first half of 2024. The memo also attempted to address the fact that Wentworth is a white man replacing a black woman as CEO. It said that Wentworth is a, quote, champion for underrepresented groups and that the company is committed to diversity. Find more reporting on this story from Katherine Davis at ChicagoBusiness.com. Cranes-Lee John Greco reported that Mayor Brandon Johnson announced a new and improved deal with NASCAR last week to host the second street race event in downtown Chicago next July, but neither party has signed an agreement yet. John Greco noted in reporting that the city would have gone public once it finalized negotiations, but NASCAR wanted to announce its racing schedule, according to a city official. The news came on the heels of an economic impact report on the event conducted by the Sports Industry Research Center at Temple University and commissioned by the city's tourism bureau. The report found that the race generated $108.9 million for the city, which is about one-fourth of a Lollapalooza and below NASCAR's own projected impact of a $113.8 $113.8 million. John Greco noted that the Johnson administration is still working toward a final agreement but has commitments from NASCAR to reimburse the city for costs at future races, according to the city official. However, the latest deal still leaves the city holding the bag from the 2023 race, which incurred $2.1 million in street repairs and another $1.1 million in police overtime, according to reporting from Southside Weekly. John Greco noted that each year of the race doesn't require a new contract. An existing agreement with NASCAR was signed under former Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration, so a new deal would amount to an addendum with updated terms. Downtown persons complained last week that the city had not given them a heads-up about the event's return, but the same city official who spoke with Cranes argued that Johnson's chief of staff had briefed council members whose wards fell along the course. Cranes' Corley J. reported that following its opening just last month, the Guinness Brewery in Fulton Market is up for sale. The brewery is expected to sell for nothing less than $20 million, according to reporting from CoStar, citing a source close to the deal. Jay noted in reporting that the estimation is based on properties in rapidly growing areas that are beating difficulties such as high interest rates. A CoStar analysis found that Fulton Market was the fastest growing urban office area in the U.S. The site at 901 West Kinsey is just one of three Guinness Open Gate breweries in the world, according to a press release from Fred Latsko, the site's developer. The Chicago location is the second Guinness Open Gate brewery in the country. The first one opened in Baltimore in 2015. At this local location, real estate company Jones Lang LaSalle is brokering the deal. The 15,000-square-foot space features a 10-barrel brew house, a retail shop, a private event space, a restaurant, and a bakery. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.